0: You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Second Kings chapter 8, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And we come to it now, Lord, with expectant hearts, Lord, with open hearts, wanting to hear from you. Lord, we ask that you would build us up in our holy faith. Lord, help us to see you clearly. Lord, help us that we would grow in our desire for you and our knowledge of you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So there is an Indian proverb which says this. It says, all the flowers of the tomorrows are in the seeds of today. Isn't it just to remind you of like Pocahontas, right? Like you can you can see it, right? Uh, so there is Indian proverb all the flowers of tomorrows of other tomorrows are in the seeds of today. Well that's true. The only thing though is that not all flowers are are created equal. For example, there's a flower called the Titan Arum flower. This is one of the largest flowers in the world. It reaches over ten feet in height. It can be like three or four feet in diameter when it blooms. Now, the Titan Arum flower is really big, and it's really famous for being one of the largest flowers in the world. But there are not a lot of people who have these flowers in their gardens. And there's a reason for that. It's not because they're so big. The reason people don't have these flowers in their gardens is because uh, the Titan Arum is part of a, a class of flowers that are called corpse flowers. The reason they're called corpse flowers is because when they come into full bloom, they exude a very strong smell that smells like a a rotting flesh, right? It smells like a a corpse. That's why it's called a corpse flower. The titan arum, it doesn't smell bad right away. So this is the cool part. If you want to play a practical joke on someone, here's what you should do. You plant one of these flowers in their garden or maybe give it to them as a gift and then tell them to water it and see what happens. And it will grow and it will grow and it will grow. And then one day it will come into full bloom. And when it does, they'll be in for a great surprise. The uh, The The smell has been described as kind of a cross between a skunk and dead fish and a, a you know, rotten meat, right? Like So this proverb is true, that all the flowers of the tomorrows are in the seeds of today, but not all flowers are equally desirable. In other words, not all growth is good growth. Vegetables grow, but so do weeds, right? Muscles grow, but so does cancer. And the same is true in our lives and in our spiritual lives as well. Both faith and sin are dynamics in our lives. What that means is dynamics. It means they're not static, right? They're things which are in flux all the time. They grow or they can diminish. So both faith and sin are dynamics in our lives that can grow. And whereas faith leads to life, sin leads to death. And so the question is this. How do we, number one, grow in faith, and number two, overcome temptation? How do we grow in faith and overcome temptation? Well, in 2 Kings chapter 8, we read two stories, which on the outset, they seem like they have nothing in common with each other. They're just two unrelated stories. But as we will see, there is a common theme that runs through these two stories about how both faith and temptation grow into full bloom grow into full bloom. The title of this message is, How to Grow in Faith and Overcome Temptation. And here's what we're going to see in this passage. Every week I give you a sentence, and that sentence functions as our outline, as our guide, as our map for studying the passage. And so here's our sentence for today. I encourage you, write it down, take a photo of it, memorize it, tell someone later. When they ask, what did you talk about at church? You tell them, this is what we talked about. It's summed up in this sentence. Growing in faith and overcoming temptation both happen through input, delight, and reliance. So, growing in faith and overcoming temptation both happen through input, delight, and reliance. Let's talk about what that means as we as we work our way through this sentence. So, growing in faith and overcoming temptation that's the first part here. The the first story here in in. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 8, is the story of a woman who had great faith. Let's read this story together, starting in verse 1. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life. Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine and it will come upon the land for seven years. Now this woman, it mentions that she's the same woman whose son was raised from the dead. Now who is this woman? Well, in chapter four, we read about this woman. She's called the Shunammite woman. That just That's because she's from the town of Shunam. But the story there in chapter four is that Elisha met this married couple... And they were were showing him, you know, really great kindness and hospitality. But although they were wealthy, although they had a comfortable life, they were unable to have a child. So Elisha prayed for them. And because of his prayers, they were able to conceive. And God blessed them with a child. Well, for many years, this child brought joy and life and light into their household until one day he suddenly and unexpectedly died. And when this boy died... His mother, the Shunammite woman, she ran to the prophet Elisha and she begged him to come to her house and help her son. And even though her son had already died, Elisha came and God did a great miracle. Through Elisha, God brought this child back to life. Well, at some point after the child was raised back to life, we read here that Elisha had instructed this woman through the Lord, write a word from the Lord, to leave this area where they lived and go sojourn somewhere else for a few years because a famine was coming upon the land that was going to make life very difficult. And so they left. It says, verse 2, The woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines for seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. So for seven years, this woman and her family lived abroad in another country, right? They, that And by doing so, this spared them from the famine which hit their region where they lived. But now it's time for them to return home to Israel, only Here's the thing. They have a problem. While they were away... Someone came in and squatted on their property. It occupied their house and their land. Now, this would be like if you went on a long vacation. You came back, and there's a new family living in your house, and you tell them, hey, you should leave. This is my house. And they're like, no, no, no. We really like living here, and we're not going to leave. So what do you do? Well, this woman went to the king. Now, why did she go to the king in order to ask for her land back? Now, it's possible that she went all the way up to the king, rather than lower authority for example, to help her get the house back because she just thought he could really help her with the squatters. Now, what's more likely, though, as we'll see as we go through this text, what's, what's almost certain is that the king himself is the one who had confiscated her property. The king himself had taken the property into his own ownership. Remember, this woman and her husband were wealthy. They were rich. They owned, as we read in chapter 4, a large amount of land which they farmed and they made money. And so uh, what's very likely here is that the king, them having kind of abandoned this property, the king came in and confiscated this land. And and we see that also because of, look at what happens next in verse 6. It says, the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, tell me the great things that Elisha has done. Now, Gehazi was the servant of Elisha. We've met him a few times here in 2 Kings. But here's the thing. In chapter 5, you might remember that Gehazi was struck with leprosy. He contracted leprosy. Well, this brings up an interesting question. And the question is, how is it that the king of Israel is talking with Gehazi if Gehazi has leprosy. As we've talked about the past several weeks, we've talked a lot about leprosy. It was an incurable and highly contagious disease, which had a 100% mortality rate. Everybody who got it died, and it was highly contagious. And for that reason, Anyone who contracted leprosy was forced to live outside of the city. They were forced to leave the community, and they weren't allowed to have contact with anyone lest they spread this deadly disease. So how is it that the king is talking with Gehazi if Gehazi has leprosy? Well, it's possible that they were having this conversation at a distance. That's possible. But what's more likely is that the events that we read here in chapter 8 actually took place before the events we read in chapter 5. See, here's what you need to understand about this part of 2 Kings in particular. is that from chapter 4 to chapter 8, we read about a series of miracles that took place during the life of Elijah and the life of King Jehoram. So from chapter 4 to chapter 8, we're reading about things that happened through Elisha during the time of this particular king, King Jehoram. But understand this, they aren't necessarily arranged in chronological order. And there are actually some other clues that show us that same thing. So in my opinion, it's very likely that this, these events here in chapter 8 took place before the events in chapter 5. It's just that they were arranged, not in chronological order, but for some other purpose to kind of pair the... Uh, the miracles together. So King Jehoram is asking Gehazi at some point, Elisha's servant, to tell him about some of the great things that Elisha had done. And in verse 5, Gehazi tells him about the Shunammite woman and how they had this son, and the son died, and Elisha came and raised her son back to life. And right as he's telling this story, the very woman that he's talking about comes and approaches King Jehoram in order to ask for her house and her land to be returned to her. Now, who's King Jehoram? Let's just remember. He is the son of King Ahab. King Ahab, who we read a lot about at the end of 1 Kings. Now, King Ahab was the most wicked, most evil king who ever ruled over Israel. And If you remember, in 1 Kings chapter 21, we saw a story in which it showed us that Ahab had this propensity to just confiscate other people's land. If he liked a piece of land, he would go and take it. And if you didn't like that, well, then he would kill you. That's what he did with this guy named Naboth. Naboth said, hey, that's my land, don't take it. And and King Ahab said, okay, now I'm going to kill you. And he did, right? And so uh, as wicked as King Ahab was, We're told in 2 Kings that Jehoram continued in the same evil ways as his father. In other words, uh, just as Ahab seems to have had a propensity for confiscating people's land, it seems that Jehoram did too. And Jehoram's not a God-fearing man, if you remember from our story last week. So the chances aren't very good that Jehoram is going to hear this woman's story and just give her back this land that he took from her. But this woman figures, hey, why not try? Because listen, if God was able to give me a son when I was barren, if God was able to raise my son from the dead w- when he had died, then surely it's no thing, no big thing for God to move on the, king of the, on the heart of the king in order to, to persuade him to give me my land back. If God could do those things, then why can't God do this thing? You see, so she goes and she asks in faith. It's a bold move, really. But she believes something that we're told in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, which is this. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Guys, I'd say that's a good word for us right now in the, in the wake of our recent election this past week. Listen, whoever is president, whoever ends up leading our country, the Lord is able to direct their heart and guide their decisions if he wills. It's important to remember that. Well, surprisingly, this wicked king hears this woman's request, and look at what it says in verse 6. He appointed an official for her, saying, restore all that was hers together with the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. Do you understand what's happening here? Not only does this woman get her house back, not only does this woman get her fields back, but Even more than that, the king gives her a bunch of money. He gives her all the money that she would have received as income from farming this land if they had stayed. This would be like, imagine, uh, if your entire annual salary was was given to you in a check multiplied by seven. So your entire annual salary, multiplied by seven, the king pulls out the checkbook, writes her a check, and hands it to her and says, there you go. Have your land, have your house, and here's a bunch of money to pay you back for the time that you were away. That's incredible. And remember, chapters four through eight of Second Kings are essentially a list of stories of great miracles that God did during the time of the prophet Elisha. In other words, this, re- this story is written here. Why? Because it is a miracle, This is a miracle. That's what it's saying. This is not a normal thing that this king would act in this way. But part of the reason why this miracle took place is because this woman had the faith to come to the king and make this bold request. Well, whereas the first story was a story of faith, the second story in this chapter is a story of temptation. Let's take a look at it in verse 7. Now, Elisha came to Damascus. That's Syria. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, the man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, his, his assistant or his servant, take a present with you and go meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, shall I recover from this sickness? So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camel loads, That's a pretty big present, right? How many things can you carry on 40 camels? Quite a lot, right? So he came to him, and he stood before him, and he said, your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent to me, saying, shall I recover from this sickness? In verse 10, Elisha said to him, go and say to him, you shall certainly recover, but the Lord has showed me that he shall certainly die. this is interesting. Elisha says, tell the king he's going to recover from his illness. But then he says to Hazael, just between you and me, God has shown me that the king is going to die. Now, wait a second. Is is Elisha here telling Hazael to lie to the king about whether or not he will recover? No. And you're going to see why in just a minute as we go on. Elisha's not telling him to lie. I'll, I'll show you why this is not a lie as we go on. Look at what it says in verse 11. It says, he, that's Elisha, fixed his gaze and stared at Hazael until he was embarrassed. Just imagine this dramatic scene. He's staring at him until Hazael feels uncomfortable. And then it says, the man of God, Elisha, began to weep. Why did he weep? Hazael says, "Why does the Lord, my, why does my Lord weep?" And he answered, "Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men with the sword, and dash in pieces their little ones, and rip open their pregnant women." Elisha had received a vision from God as he was sitting there uh, about who this man Hazael was and what the future held. And it was almost too much for him to bear. It was one of these times when his prophetic gift was more of a burden than a blessing. He saw this and it was more than he could ever have wanted to see, more than he could ever have desired to see. It was terrible. And he cried. God had given Elisha this vision of what lay in the future with Hazael. And as he saw this vision, he wept. But Hazael's confused. Look at what he says in verse 13, the first part. He says, what is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? Hazael's like, wait a second, me? You think that I'm going to set fortresses on fire and kill people and wage war against Israel? I'm just the assistant. I'm not even the king. I'm like the king's you know, right-hand guy, but I don't call the shots. And Elisha told him, the Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. And it says, verse 14, then he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, what did Elisha say to you? He answered, he told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day, he took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face until he died. He murdered him, and Hazael became king in his place. You see, what Elisha said about the king's illness was true. It was not a fatal illness. The king would have recovered from his sickness and not died. But what Elisha saw in his vision that he dared not tell Hazael was that Hazael the next day was going to murder the king so that he could steal his throne. Now, what is this story about? It's a story about temptation. We can see how this man, Hazael, went from having an idea, an idea that wouldn't it be great if I was in power? Wouldn't it be great if I was in charge and the king was gone? That idea turned into, it gave birth to a temptation. And then that temptation gave birth to action in these murderous ways. Listen, what is temptation? Temptation is the desire to do something evil or unwise. The desire to do something evil or unwise. The Bible tells us that temptation is not from God. James chapter 1, verse 13 says this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But then this passage goes on to tell us how temptation turns into action in our lives. Here's what it says. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. In Hazael's case, he had a desire for power, but there was something that stood in the way of him getting that power, namely the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad. So that desire led to this temptation to kill Ben-Hadad, the king. Listen, all of us face Temptation, these desires to do something evil or unwise. Even Jesus himself faced temptation, sometimes for prolonged periods, right? We're like 40 days, he's tempted in the wilderness after his baptism. A temptation isn't, check this, it isn't always a desire for a bad thing. Oftentimes, a temptation is the desire for a good thing, but it's the temptation to go about getting that good thing in a way that is evil or unwise. And here's the thing when you give into temptation, that's when we sin. It's when we give into those desires, that temptation. The word sin, by the way, it's an archery term. It means to miss the mark. So sin is not just breaking the rules. What sin is, it, it's more than that. It means that you've, you've missed the mark. You've missed perfection. You've fallen short, whether intentionally or unintentionally. You failed to hit the target. You failed to do what is right. Now, you might say, well, hey, listen, Nick, don't be so hard, right? Because, because not everybody, I mean, everybody, does that kind of stuff. Everybody falls short sometimes. Everybody makes mistakes. Nobody's perfect. And I would say exactly. That is precisely what the Bible says. It says all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then then you might say in response, you know, well sure, listen, I understand that some sins are particularly bad, like murder or abuse. But there are other sins which are, which are harmless, right? Like if you lie to someone and it doesn't hurt anybody. Listen, if you steal from a big company and they, it, that's nothing to them, right? That, that's peanuts to them. It, you're not hurting anybody. No one's going to die as a result of that. But what James is saying is that the problem with sin is that all sin— leads to death. All sin leads to death. And the death he's talking about is not just physical. It's the death that happens on a spiritual level. It's the death of your eternal soul. That is what all sin will lead to. Because when you sin, it sets you at enmity. With God, who is holy and perfect. Listen, the reason sin is bad is because it causes destruction on every level. If you analyze everything, any problem that is wrong in the world today, you will trace that back and you will find at its root the issue is sin in one form or another. And the thing about temptation, Here's what's so devious about it. Temptation disguises itself in order to appear less dangerous than it really is. That's a, the that's a tricky part about temptation. It disguises itself to make itself appear less dangerous than it really is. Think about the story of Cain and Abel. Do you remember the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4? You might remember that Cain murdered his brother Abel. But before Cain murdered his brother, there's something that took place that a lot of people forget about. They overlook it. Before Cain murdered his brother, he was very angry. And God spoke to him there in that anger that he had when he was tempted to act on that anger. And here's what God said to him. Cain, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to have you. But you must rule over it. He says, Sin is crouching at the door and its desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Listen, think about that picture that is being drawn there. He says, Cain, you're facing this temptation. You have these strong feelings. It's as if sin is crouching at the door. What kind of things crouch? Well, well adults, right? We crouch down when we play with little children. You know what else it does crouching? Cats. Cats. And think about lions tigers, panthers, they crouch. Why? Why do things crouch? Why do people crouch? Why do animals crouch? For one reason, to make themselves look smaller than they actually are, to make themselves look less threatening than they actually are. And so what God is saying is, that is what temptation is like. Temptation makes itself appear as if it is not that big of a deal, as if you can handle it. It's not really that dangerous. It's not that bad. But he says, listen, if you don't rule over it, if you don't overcome it, it will pounce on you and it will rip you to shreds. It will destroy you. That is what's at stake. So considering how important these things are, it brings us back to our original question, which is, how do we, number one, grow in faith? And how do we, number two, overcome temptation? So let's reflect on these two stories and take these uh, takeaways from them. Number one, uh, growing in faith and overcoming temptation happens through input. Input is really important. The woman in the first story, where did she get the faith to step out and make this bold request of this wicked king. Well, it seems that, at least in part, the way that her faith grew was by seeing God do great things in her life in the past, right? God had given her a child when she was barren. God had brought her deceased son back to life. The input of seeing and experiencing those past experiences helped to grow her faith to the point where she was confident enough in God's ability to do great things that she stepped out and made this bold request in faith. Now, one of the ways that our faith grows, again, is through input. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing, specifically through hearing the word of God. Hearing the word of God. The psalmist says, I will tell of your great deeds so that many will hear and believe. The the psalmist also says, he tells himself, hope in the Lord and forget not all he has done for you. In John's gospel, he says, I have written these things so that you may believe. He said, these things I saw with my own eyes, I've written them. Why? So that you might believe. Listen, the input of hearing and seeing who God is and what he has done, both in your own life and in the lives of others, is very powerful in growing your faith. That's why we spend time in God's word. It's why we focus on fellowship with other believers, because we need this input in our, in our hearts and in our minds. Jesus said that God's word is like a seed, that when it gets into you, it does something. Something begins to grow as a result. In the same way, temptation, though, temptation can begin with a thought or a desire that's planted in you, and temptation can grow as well. This is why Paul the Apostle, in his, letters to the, in his letter to the Galatians, he says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. The one who sows to his flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. Paul urges us to ask this question of ourselves. What seeds are you planting in your life? What kinds of things are you putting into your heart and your mind? Because what you put in will determine what grows So what kind of things do you want to grow in your life? Determine that, and then be intentional about the kinds of inputs that you bring into your heart and your mind. Here's the thing about seeds. When you plant a seed, you don't see the results right away, do you? Sometimes it takes a while, because something's happening below the surface where you can't see it. But eventually, as those seeds are watered and planted, they will grow. You might be tempted to think that nothing's happening because you can't see it on the surface. But Paul says, don't be fooled. Though you can't see the results right away, for good or for bad, the things you plant into your heart and mind, the things that are watered will bear fruit. The question is, will it be the kind of growth you want or the kind of growth that will hurt you? So be intentional about feeding your faith rather than feeding the crouching sins, the temptations in your life. The second one we see here is that growing in faith and overcoming temptation also happens through delight. It's not just the inputs in your life that matter. It's also what you delight in. Look at at what James says one more time about temptation. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. In the second story here, what did we see? The issue with Hazael wasn't just the the issue that the idea of killing the king was planted in his mind. It's what he did with that idea. You see, it wasn't just that Hazael was tempted to kill the king. It's what Hazael did with that temptation. He entertained it. He fantasized it. He let those thoughts run wild and unfettered in his mind, and he delighted in them. And as he did that, that temptation grew. St. Augustine said this, he said, the most significant thing about a person is what they love. And here's why. Because our actions are determined by what we most desire. What we most desire, what you most desire, will determine what you do with your life. Our desires matter. And so here's what Augustine said. If you want to change a person's life, if you want to change their heart, you can't just give them rules. You can't just tell them what to do because that won't change their desires. That will just limit their actions. It won't change their desires. It won't change their hearts. So in other words, in other, rather than just giving people rules, what we need to do is to change what they most fundamentally want, what they most fundamentally desire. And how do you change someone's desires? He said it's by showing them something that is more beautiful than anything else they've ever seen, by showing them something that's more desirable than the thing they're currently desiring. Do you remember the story of of the Odyssey in Homer? The story of the Odyssey is the story of this guy named Odysseus. And Odysseus is journeying back home from the Trojan War. And along the way, he faces a lot of challenges. But the biggest challenge he faces, by far, is the island of the sirens. The sirens are these creatures who look like beautiful women. But in reality, they're monsters. And and they sing a song that is so beautiful that the sailors cannot resist it. So they steer their ships towards the island of the Sirens only to crash their boats on the rocks and die. It's a trap. But here's the thing. They know it's a trap. And even though they know it's a trap, the sailors cannot resist the allure of the Sirens' song. What is he talking about? Homer was painting a picture for us of temptation. This is what temptation is like. Even though you know it's a trap, it is so alluring that you steer your boat towards it and you shipwreck your life on the rocks. So what does Odysseus do? Well, Odysseus, in order to get past the island of the sirens, he comes up with a plan. He tells his sailors to tie him to the mast of the ship, and he says, no matter what I say, don't let me out. And he tells them, stuff their ears with wax to prevent themselves from hearing the sirens' song. So they do, and they're able to make it just barely past the island of the sirens. Now, here's what's interesting. About 500 years after Homer wrote The Odyssey, There was another book written called Argonautica. Argonautica was also about a sea journey in the Mediterranean Sea. And in Argonautica, interestingly, the sailors also had to pass by the island of the Sirens. Again, the picture of temptation. But the Argonauts took a different approach to dealing with temptation than the approach that Odysseus had taken. Rather than stuffing their ears with wax, rather than tying their captain to the mast to restrain him, the Argonauts brought with them a great musician. They brought with them a great musician. And when it came time to pass by the island of the sirens, they asked the musician to come out and play his instrument. And they asked him to play louder and more beautifully than the song of the sirens. Listen, because their ears were filled with a sweeter song, with a more beautiful song, they were not even tempted to follow the sirens' song. Do you understand what that means? It means this. The true way to overcome temptation in your life is not just by trying to restrain yourself and and piling up rules and things like that. The true way to overcome temptation in your life comes down to desire. And the way to change your desires is to fill your ears, to fill your heart with the sweeter song of the gospel, the sweeter song of the goodness of Jesus, the truth of God's word, the wisdom of God, Because when your ears and your heart are full of that sweeter song, it drowns out all the siren songs of this world. Well, the final way that we grow in faith and overcoming temptation is through reliance. Look back at the story of the woman at the the beginning of the chapter. Elisha gave her a message, go and sojourn in this land, a prophetic message from the Lord. And look at what it says in verse 2, the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. In other words, she obeyed the word of the Lord to her through the prophet Now understand, it would have required a lot of faith for this woman to do that. Because why? She didn't know how or if she would ever get her house back. How or if she would ever get her land back. How would they have any money if they returned from living abroad for seven years? For her to obey the word of God, to leave her home for seven years, required a massive amount of faith. But she did it. That act of faith, You know what it did when she stepped out and trusted God? It put her in a position of reliance upon God. Reliance upon God to take care of her needs. But you know what faith is, right? Faith is simply trusting God enough to do what he says. That's what faith is. It is trusting God enough to do what he says. Now listen, faith can grow through hearing. Faith can grow through seeing. But it can't only grow through hearing and seeing. Faith grows also through practice you have to use it. In order for your faith to grow, you have to use it. Faith is like a muscle that grows stronger the more you use it. In order for it to grow, you have to use it. As you rely on the Lord in the face of temptation, he will give you the strength that you need beyond your natural abilities so that through reliance on him, you will be able to walk in victory. And in conclusion, I mean, how do we know this is true? How do we know this is true? Here's how. Because this is what the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4. Listen to this. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us, therefore, approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. When Jesus was here on the earth, he faced the same temptations that we do, and yet he overcame those temptations, and he did not sin. And listen, what does that mean for us? Well, here's, the, here's what it means. The fact that Jesus did not sin, it doesn't simply mean that he's a good example for us to look up to and follow. No, what it means is that he is uniquely qualified to be the Savior that we need. Where we have failed, where we have fallen short, he succeeded and he was victorious. Whereas the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And what it means to put your faith in Jesus, it means reliance. It means to rely on him. It means to cling to him, both for your right standing before God and for the strength to face whatever you're going through today. The message of the gospel is that Jesus overcame sin and death on your behalf. And as you rely on him, as you cling to him, he will see you through both today and for eternity. Would you please stand with me and let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.